City. It's your man, Big Pat, the voice of your Charlotte Hornets. And you're listening to the All Hornets Podcast Network, presented by Sports Illustrated. City, it's your man Big Pat, the voice of your Charlotte Hornets, and you're listening to the All Hornets Podcast Network, presented by Sports Illustrated. Welcome to the first episode of The Stinger, part of the All Hornets Podcast Network. I'm your host, James Parright, and on today's solo episode, I'm going to go through my top three coaching candidates for the current Hornets head coaching vacancy. Before we get into kind of the positives and negatives of my favourite three candidates, I just think it's first important to mention that analysing coaching, especially assistant coaching in the NBA, is just so difficult because it's really hard to associate success with the team to one individual or and kind of assign responsibility alongside that. So especially when you're looking at some of these assistant coaches, um, it's, it's very difficult to figure out, like, was, was that team great at defense or offense because of them? Or was it because of their players? Or was it because of the other assistant coaches or head coach? And this was why, this is one of the things I think probably most difficult for media, fans, analysts to really comment on is coaching hires and firings. Because you don't understand the nitty gritty, what's going on behind the scenes with managing relationships, which I have to say is such a huge part of, of coaching sport. And as someone, I haven't coached basketball, but as someone who has coached players to, to elite level in other sports and semi-pro levels, uh, professional academy levels, managing those relationships, getting the best out of players, getting them turning up and giving that all every day. Like if you can get your players to do that, that is 75% of coaching. The, the X's and O's and when to take a timeout and your, your tactics and style, yes, that's obviously important. But a lot of the time it comes down to getting the best out of the pieces that you've got together. So with that said, I'm going to try to do my best here uh, to go through three candidates. And I'm going to start with my number three candidate firstly, uh, and that is Kenny Atkinson. So Kenny Atkinson is currently the assistant coach in the Golden State Warriors who are in the Western Conference Finals. Uh, Previously to that, he was the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. He was famously hired by Sean Marks um, when Brooklyn were in the middle of their rebuilding period, when they had no draft picks. Uh, Garnett, Paul Pierce, they'd all gone. It was completely just building from the ground up with, with nothing to build with. Um, and generally, I think some of the, the big positives here is Kenny Atkinson was hired from that Spurs coaching tree. So similar as James Borrego, like some of you might say, he, he came from that pop background. Uh, but he does have some head coaching experience previously with Brooklyn. Um, while part of the like kind of Warriors, I've, what I really like, he's been kind of had access to a really unique offensive style. So the Warriors play a very limited pick and roll offense and their defense has been very good without kind of having a tra- tra- traditional center and playing a lot of small guards and Jordan Poole, Clay Thompson, Steph Curry. Um, and he's been able to kind of get a peek into that now for the last two years while he's been assistant coach there. And I, I definitely think some of the offensive style with lots of off-ball cutting, it's really translated well to the playoffs. And I think in today's NBA, where it's all spread, pick and roll, 
everyone's shooting a bunch of threes. It's all like getting out in transition. I think just having a different quiver to your bow would be something really interesting there. And it's important we realise this isn't Kenny Atkinson's system. That was there beforehand. It's Steve Kerr's system. But Kenny Atkinson will undoubtedly picked up some of the things from being part of that organisation, which I, I definitely think is a positive. Um, during his time in Brooklyn, he was generally known as a really good X's and O's coach. In fact, I, I always even remember really clearly Kevin Durant talking about how like he was like amazed by some of like the out-of-timeout plays that he was drawing up when he joined the team and uh, just generally being quite impressed with some of the X's and O's. So I think that's a positive thing as well. He also had a player development background, kind of really picked up a few guys off the scrap heap. So Spencer Dinwiddie was essentially like waved by the Bulls. Um, you had Karis LeVert. You had Jarrett Allen. Draft draft picks kind of like latish lottery to, to middle to late first round who both turned, you know, Allen turned into an all-star this past year. Karis LeVert, not an all-star level player, but is, is definitely turned into a, a starter sixth man level player, which considering where he was drafted was pretty impressive. And and Joe Harris as well, who uh, has been injured this past season, but again, went from being waived by Cleveland to, to really kind of emerge as a 3 and D wing. So very kind of some similar things you're beginning to see here with James Borrego, with his, you know, ability to, to have good X's and O's, to, to develop players, especially young players. And I know some people automatically go, wait, he's from the Spurs um, and he's got a player development background. It's just another James Borrego. I'm sorry, it's not a video game. Like, things don't work like that. Um, when it comes to coaching, like I talked off the start, relationships play such a big key. And and I think it was pretty clear that James Borrego had not, you know, he damaged some of the relationships with players. Reading between the lines of comments from Mitch Kupchak, comments from some of the players following the playing game. I don't think his voice was being heard and kind of abided to by some of the players. And... But let's not forget, James Borrego did a lot of positive things. You know, one of the best off- offences in the NBA, really did help with that player development background. But if you lose the players, then you're really in an uphill battle. The other thing is, in the last year, Borrego really didn't play many of the young players. You know, didn't give many minutes to Kai Jones, didn't give many minutes to Buck Knight. That's something that, that Kenny Atkinson definitely did in Brooklyn. Also, it's what they've done in Golden State this year. Moses Moody, Kaminga have all got playing time. So you get hope that he would come in wanting to give minutes to some of the young players while also balancing that with competing as well. Okay, let's move on to some of the negatives here. So um, I think, you know, Kenny Atkinson was known to be a really great coach, but as soon as the expectations of Brooklyn were to kind of start winning and KD and Kyrie joined, he kind of struggled. And the team wasn't doing great and Kyrie remissed some time with that shoulder impingement injury. Um, But... Essentially, like halfway through the first season, the players wanted him gone. And the only players who've got that kind of power are KD and Kyrie. And they'd been there not that long. And it was pretty clear that they'd said to the organization, I think we need a new voice here. Which the, the Hornets definitely want someone with head coaching experience. But it's not great ring endorsement when, you know, KD, a future Hall of Famer, one of the best players in the NBA, and Kyrie, a, a great player in his own right. Um, within you know months of joining the team are suggesting to the organization this isn't the right guy um so again you're talking about managing those relationships potentially another example there of he wasn't able to get on the positive side and get the buy-in from those star players 
the other thing is just no playoff success in his history with Brooklyn. Um, he's obviously had some of that with Golden State and with the Spurs beforehand. But as a head coach, he, he never really had the success in the players. I think he did make it as an eight seed one year. Um, they didn't have any expectation, but he hasn't gone deep into conference semifinals, conference finals as that head decision maker, which I think the Hornets, it's something that they've said, Mitch Kupchak said, He's leaning 60-40, 55-40 to try and get someone with head coaching experience. Okay, moving on to my number two candidate for the role. And that's Darvin Ham. He's the assistant coach for the Milwaukee Bucks. Currently also a candidate, as is Kenny Atkinson, I should say, for the LA Lakers job. And very interesting here with the kind of overlap of candidates between the Lakers and the Hornets. And I don't know if that's reassuring that the Lakers want to hire the same people or depending on your thoughts on the Lakers and how they run, if that's a bit of a worry that you've zeroed in on the same people. But it'll be interesting to see here which team ends up with with which coach because I do feel like both of these coaches could be head coaches uh, going into next season. So positives for Darvin Ham. Well, firstly, he's an ex-player. He fought his way through the league from going undrafted um, really sounds like he's a players coach, really well liked. He can actually get on the court with guys and, and play with them, which I think in the, in the new world and trying to relate to younger players, I think that's that can be a real benefit here. And that's not something really Borrego or Atkinson could do. Um, he's Michigan born and raised, very close to where Miles Bridges is from. So, you know, he's come from an area which I think a lot of NBA players can probably relate to in terms of his upbringing which again just helps build those bridges with, with those key players. Um, Darvin Ham actually coached under Kupchak before. Kupchak hired him when he was a, as an assistant, gave him his first NBA coaching gig as a player development coach back with the Lakers. So again, I think that's an interesting link there. They've obviously got some prior experience and he has that background as a player development coach as well. Um, Ham has been part of massively successful winning programs in recent times. You know, the Milwaukee Bucks have been one of the NBA championship recently, been one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference. Before that, he was with Budenholzer again at Atlanta Hawks, who set that record uh, for, for wins in a season. And we're a very successful team over that time. And Ham has kind of been credited to a lot of the defense. It's never as simple as it's just one guy's defense, but he's definitely been an integral part of the defensive systems in both Milwaukee and Atlanta. And I think he's done that with especially in Atlanta, like not the greatest defensive players. So you look at that kind of famous starting fire was Jeff Teague, Kyle Korver, straight away, like neither of those are great defenders. Korver's better than kind of most people give credit for, but but by no means lockdown guys. Then you had um, James Johnson, Al Horford, Joe Johnson, sorry. Joe Johnson, Al Horford, Paul Millsap. Again, like both were good defenders in the prime, Horford and Millsap. But by no means are kind of Marcus Smart, Rudy Gobert level players. And he was able to create great defences, which had a, a good balance offence as well. And then you look at his job in Milwaukee. Now, the obvious thing is, well, yeah, they've got Giannis. But how often is it that the best player in the NBA is also like probably the best defender in the NBA? Like Giannis has won, I think, multiple defensive player of the years. And I give like any team credit to get their star player buying in that much on the defensive end. And that's something that, you know, I really potentially like with his fit with, with Lamelo as well. Um, also, you look at, you taking someone like Brooke Lopez, who 
was like a post up big when he came in the league and now with Milwaukee he's turned into like an exceptional rim protector. And again, you're talking about late career player development there from Brook Lopez. And I want to kind of give Ham some credit for, for making that change. Um, the other thing I like with Ham is he's definitely like hungry, ready for the opportunity. Like he's been grinding as an assistant coach now for a bit of time. If he gets that head coaching job, it's, it's a weakness and a strength. Like he's obviously going to be new to it. He's going to be a bit naive, but he's also going to be putting absolutely everything. Like that will be his moment, his opportunity. And sometimes, you know, I just love guys when they, they've got that real hunger to succeed. Um, the other thing just to note here as well, he was voted the best assistant coach in the NBA by GMs. Actually, he was co-voted that with Kenny Atkinson, one of the other candidates, and that was at the start of last season. So he's definitely got respect around the NBA. Moving on to negatives. Um, there's really not too many. Uh, it's, it's a lot harder to analyse negatives of assistant coaches just because they generally don't get criticised or analysed as much. Um, because they are just that, they're an assistant coach. But I, th- I think the big one, and I've already mentioned it, no head coaching experience. And like there are so many guys who were well-known to be fantastic assistant coaches who, when they've been given that head coaching job, they, it just hasn't translated. And it's a, it's a big different thing kind of being like the, the friend of the player who's kind of like, building the bridge with the players while the head coach can be the bad guy. A lot of assistant coaches kind of do that. To then all of a sudden, kind of, you're, you're the head guy and you've got to make the final decision. Players will hold you accountable for playing time, not the head coach. And and that can change the dynamic a little bit. And I'm not saying that you can or can't do that. I'm just saying we haven't got that clear to us. Um, you know, I already mentioned Mitch about leaning towards a guy with head coaching experience. Um, so that's something to be aware of. And how do you quantify that? So difficult. I, I can't I can't quantify it for you. How much of a negative is it is? Um, you look at guys like Imo Doka, who, I mean, even in one season, half first half of the season, people are saying Imo Doka, it's not translating as a head coach. Why is he he's being naive here, calling out his guys in the media for not playing defense? Well, now they're on, you know, the edge of making the NBA finals. And they've got one of the best defenses in NBA history. So um things can change really quickly with that. The other thing just to mention is like I wouldn't necessarily class Darvin Ham as an offensive innovator. Like he didn't play that way himself. Um, it's not something that when I've been doing my research, speaking to people around the team, trying to speak to um, uh, people who've written articles about him, he doesn't necessarily get that credit for being like behind that Bucks offense, behind that Hawks offense. Um, he's been more focused on the defensive end. Now, you can look at that two ways. As one, the offense isn't a problem with the Hornets, all right? They've already got a great offense, um, and we need someone to come and help defensively. But at the same time, you could also go, well, the Hornets were already great offense. What if they take a drop there and they haven't got the personnel to be a good defensive team? So like with everything here, you need to try and be top 10 for both. That's how teams get good, is by being good on both ends. It is not just about hiring a coach for one end of the floor. And moving on to my number one candidate, who I have to say, like, I would say Darwin Ham is like 1B, and my, my last one is going to be Mike D'Antoni. He's 1A. They're so close. Like, I would be thrilled with either of these guys. I think, for me, they kind of step out as the, the best candidates. Um, so, firstly, let's just go with the, the positives of Mike D'Antoni. Experience. The most experienced candidate, probably of, of any candidate in the league, 
Um, he's got a 56% all-time winning percentage. He's coached over 1,200 NBA games. He's made 10 postseasons, three conference finals. Um, so you're talking about a guy who has you know, been at six franchises and has completely seen it all. Um, now, he is 71 years old, which we're going to touch on that later. And that's how he's been around so long and why he's got such kind of a good amount of experience. But when you're talking about uh, the franchise wanting to get someone who has proven perfect experience, Mike D'Antoni is by far the best candidate for that. Another positive is respect. Someone, you know, D'Antoni is universally respected by players, coaches, agents, perhaps most importantly, front officers. Um, he's worked, you know, he's been long rumored to be like the replacement of Doc Rivers if he were to ever leave Philly. Um, uh, you know, he's been an assistant in Brooklyn this last couple of years, which I think is underrated. And I, I like the fact that rather than just sitting out the gate, uh, out of uh, the game at all after he left Houston, he actually took kind of like a dose of like reality, decided to go back to being an assistant um, and wanted to work and help, you know, one of his old players, Steve Nash, get his coaching career off the ground as well, which I, I just like love his passion for the game. And when people question his passion at 71 years old, I think that's something you need to be aware of. It's like he's being an assistant coach at 70 years old. Like he's earned enough money and he's got the respect that no one, no one needs to do that. A lot of people don't like going back to being assistants after being head coaches, but, but he did that in Brooklyn. Um, other positives. Look, you're talking about a guy here with a track record of getting the most out of of gifted primary ball handlers. And you look at Houston with James Harden, Phoenix with Steve Nash, both of those guys won MVPs while Mike D'Antoni was coaching them. And the team had success and those players had success. And the Melo Ball is that level, I would say, of talent of both those guys. I'm not saying he will ever probably reach the level that, that, that they both reached, but in terms of what he's shown at his age, you can see a path there. And... We know in the NBA, you go as far as your best player. And to get the best out of the Mellow Ball, I think Mike D'Antoni is, is probably the best hire if you want to be, be focusing on that. I think another thing I want to focus on as well is his success with playing small. So the Hornets roster is currently constructed. It's not a surprise to you. They, they don't have a, a Clint Capella like he had at Houston. Um, like even when he was in Phoenix, they played Amari at the five. Um, it was kind of an, an undersized five at the time. And I, I like how he could probably take this roster with the, the PJ Washington types and maybe someone like Kai Jones, who is a five, but it's kind of like can also run out and transition and, and play well uh, as, as an offensive five. He can play there and, and definitely put in a system to take advantage of that small ball roster and don't necessarily need a, a big, which, you know, if, if the team were to try and find an eight and a go bear, would have to give up. Uh, a lot of assets to do it and also take a good chunk of the cha- of the cap space. Um, he also wants to play really fast. You know, his style that he wants to play, the Hornets have already got players that I think suit that and have kind of got used to playing in that similar mold, which I, I think is something the Charlotte team need to continue to do. Like you've heard a lot of opposing teams and coaches say after the season, Charlotte are one of the hardest opposing teams to kind of plan for and scout for because... They just play so much reading react. They play so fast. And I think even though we're getting a new coach here, I don't. I think it's important that Charlotte don't lose that identity. I think it's clear that identity that they have. And I don't want that to kind of completely be flipped. Moving on to some negatives. Um, you know, his experience, while also great, 
can also be a concern. Like the only older coach in the NBA right now is Greg Popovich. Um, he's, I think, 73. How will Mike D'Antoni, as a 71-year-old, like relate to someone like Lamelo Ball, who, you know, is different, is like young, fun-living guy. Um, it's, it's just a different generation, even to the uh, James Harden, Steve Nash type. Um, I just think that's interesting as well. Um, the other thing is like, how long can be he be around? Like, you you don't you want to always want to hire a coach really for five to ten years. Like the Eric Spolstra, the Steve Kerr's who stick around and you create like an institutional knowledge. It's pretty clear if Mike D'Antonio was the coach, that just wouldn't happen in Charlotte. Um, that could happen with Ham Kenny Atkinson, but I do think it's worth noting that. It doesn't happen that often anyway, even when you do hire that younger guy. It's, it's you know, average life coach and an NBA coach, I'm guessing here, I don't know off the top of my head, it's probably somewhere between three and five years. Um, and it's not, you know, ridiculous to think that Mike D'Antoni could do that. Um, another potential negative is what used to give Mike D'Antoni his edge as a, an innovator and a forward thinker, you know, was playing fast, shooting lots of threes, high possession game. That's kind of now the norm in the NBA. So has Mike D'Antoni still got that edge? Now, the one thing I will say, he was always an innovator. Like, even when they uh, traded away Clint Capella at the deadline at Houston, and I think they played PJ Tucker at the five, like, even at the time, that was in the three-point era, everyone was like, whoa, this is going really, like, super-duper small. And it worked really well. And it got the best out of Russell Westbrook for the second half of that season. So I don't think the innovation... Is completely. I don't think it's completely caught up with D'Antoni now, and I like how he's had a couple of years as an assistant, probably to kind of sit back, reflect, and and look at try and find new inefficiencies in the game. The other obvious negative is he doesn't necessarily help to project to help the defense. Even though you, you look back on some of the defensive rankings of his teams, and in points per game, they'll always be at the bottom. That's the case. But if you actually looked at defensive efficiency, which takes into account the number of possessions they play, because his Houston and his Suns teams played at such fast pace, if you actually look at that, they were normally middle of the kind of middle of the table defensively. So they weren't good, but they were they were okay and good enough kind of in that 10 to 15 range. And in Houston, he did have a top five defense one year. His lead assistant coach was Jeff Bedelic, and he was generally like the defensive guru in Houston. And D'Antoni kind of allocated a lot of that responsibility to him. It's unclear whether he would come and coach back under D'Antoni. He did leave Houston in kind of interesting circumstances. Um, it's hard. To, it was hard to kind of know whether those fraying relations there were with D'Antoni or with the wider front office there. So that'd be interesting to know. But Bazelic hasn't coached since leaving New Orleans, where he's an associate head coach. Um, from 2019 to 2020. He's not been coaching the league since. So he might be kind of done. He might be retired. Or maybe he's just right, looking for the right opportunity as well. Um, but I do think if if D'Antoni were to come in, he definitely have to bring in some guy with a kind of remit around defense. I think that would be important. And whether it's Bazelic or someone else that he knows within the NBA, I think that's one of the, the positives of D'Antoni. He, he's probably as well-connected within the NBA as anyone just because he's been around for so long. And I think he could potentially build a, a really promising assistant coaching staff as well. So those are my thoughts really on the head coaching search. I'd expect a announcement probably kind of, I'd say before like the 15th of June, guessing from Mitch Kupchak's comments. Um, and, you know, I know Terry Stotts is also in the mix as well. Um, but these are my top three candidates. Um, 
fascinated to see who gets appointed. In terms of them being unveiled, I imagine they'll probably do it before the draft and do their pre-draft press conference, which the GM, Mitch Kupchak, normally does anyway at the same time. So that, you know, if Mitch doesn't have to speak to the, the press twice, I'm guessing he won't. Um, so that's what I project to happen. Um, hope you all enjoyed listening for the first episode of The Stinger. If you haven't already, make sure you check out the SIHornets.com for all latest Hornets news. We've got some great draft stuff on there now. We'll have a bunch of stuff when the new coach gets hired. We've got some free agency pieces coming out, including some free agency rankings, looking at players for each position who Hornets could potentially target and how much they would cost this offseason. So loads of great stuff on SIHornets.com. But for now, I'm James Plowright. Thank you for listening to the first episode of The Stinger, and we'll check back with you next time.